I do think art is um, is a special domain of practice, and uh, and it's not easy. You know, it's fun. I do art because I think it's a more fun world than most worlds, but it is it does require a lot of dedication, hard work, and and also learning how to pick yourself up and playing the long game. Welcome to Intention, a podcast presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, where we speak with artists about their art and practice. Before we get into this first exciting episode, I wanted to talk about another show we love. Curator on the Go podcast is your passport to a curated journey through the fascinating realm of art and culture. Hosted by Toronto-based art curator Lisa Zhirkovskaya, a.k.a. Curator on the Go, this podcast celebrates diversity and inclusivity within the art world by featuring a captivating blend of discussions, stories, and interviews with artists and art professionals from various cultural backgrounds and perspectives. Here's a bit from Lisa herself. Curator on the Go podcast is the perfect blend of art appreciation, education, and entertainment. With each episode, you embark on a new adventure, delving into the diverse and inspiring practices of guest speakers that include artists, curators, and individuals with unique perspectives on art. These guests bring fresh insights and experiences to each episode. I invite you to be part of the Curator on the Go community, where artists, art lovers, and enthusiasts come together to celebrate creativity in all its forms. Now back to the episode. One of the great things about art is its universality. Art can be almost anything as long as it contains thought, heart, creativity, and has something to say about the human condition. Renowned Canadian artist Ken Lum exemplifies an artist who has had a boundless relationship with art. As a scholar, artist, curator, writer, and publisher, Lum's career spans several decades. Born and raised in Vancouver to a Chinese immigrant family, He's often associated with the Vancouver School of Art, a group of conceptual artists who emerged in the 1970s. Ken Lum is known for his conceptual and representational art in a number of media, including painting, sculpture, and photography. A longtime professor, he's currently the chair of fine arts at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Design in Philadelphia. He was formerly professor of art at the University of British Columbia where he was also the head of the Graduate Studio Program. A co-founder and founding editor of Yushu, Journal of Contemporary Chinese Art, Ken is a prolific writer and has numerous published articles, catalog essays, and juried papers. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Nice seeing you again, Neil. So Ken, I know you read a lot. You're a big-time reader, and I'm also aware that often what you read will influence uh, what happens in your studio and in your work in general. So just to kick things off, what have you been reading? Well, you know, I'm I'm a chair of a department, and so I've been reading a lot of different student essays. <laughs> I gave a couple of le- lectures in Shanghai recently. I had to read about uh, Republican art in, in China. But in terms of my own pleasure, I don't I, – I take pleasure in reading for my own required courses and things, but it's true. I – I used to read a lot of novels, for example. Mm-hmm. I haven't read a novel in ages. I mean, I reread a, not reread, I read a book by Edley Wong, but that was related to um, 
contract laborers, Chinese contract laborers in the 19th century. Right. And that's related to a project I was working on. So the I think the question the question <laughs> should be like, what do you read for pleasure? And I would yeah. have a hard time with that. You reference books quite a bit in, in your writing, and you also reference films. So mm-hmm. I thought we would start off there. What what was inspiring you these days or what was intriguing you in terms of, of what you're reading? But it sounds like you're reading a lot connected to your various projects. Yeah, it's kind of, it's been coming a bit of a problem problem that way. Yeah. But I, I'm really inspired by a lot of film, I yes. have to say. I kind of took a hiatus from watching films for a number of years and for whatever reasons, it wasn't the program. And uh, but I've seen quite a few really great films. You know, I saw a thousand and one, mm-hmm. which I thought was a fantastic film about um, about Harlem during just at the beginning stages of gentrification. Mm. And actually, an ex student, a recent MFA graduate at Penn, is the cinematographer. So, oh, nice. Well, Ken, you, in my opinion, have one of the most remarkable and, and enviable careers in art. You're an artist, of course, scholar, writer, curator, publisher, university administrator. I mean, I could go on. And these roles appear to keep you engaged across multiple entry points to art. And I'm wondering, how did you go about shaping such a, a diverse and expansive career? I could say eclectic, but... I'll go with expensive. Right. I don't think it's eclectic, personally, because I think it they all have to do with um, different aspects or different dimensions of art and culture. Mm-hmm. I include and culture there because I'm not only interested in how art operates within the terms of the art system right? or how art is implicated within the larger cultural sphere, although that interests me. But I'm interested in culture writ large, like the culture that's produced by ordinary people, culture that most people wouldn't even deem as as worthy of the word culture. But I think it's uh, one of the great things about cultural studies was that any form of uh, expression can be deemed a part of culture. So it wasn't wasn't, um, some program that I deliberated (laughs) upon. (laughs) It was more like, um, and I've said this in many interviews, that it was uh, provoked by dissatisfaction, a deep dissatisfaction on my part regarding what I, I thought were the limits of, of art. I always ask mm-hmm. myself this question about uh, what more is there to being an artist? And, mm-hmm. and when I say being an artist, it's not separate from a concurrent question of what, what does it also mean to be a citizen in this world, on this planet at this time, and what are the responsibilities of a, of a citizen of the world? Mm-hmm. And so, of course, that required being curious about the other worlds, the other geographical worlds, which, you know, the art world's highly circumscribed, even today, right? It's much more globalized, but even today yeah. it's highly circumscribed. But certainly when I was um, 30 years ago, it was yeah. very uh, European or uh, North American, right? With smatter, maybe a little bit of Japan, a little bit of South America and so on. Yeah. But I was genuinely interested in these places because I thought, well, wait a second, what? Why is everyone ignoring Africa? I mean, it's right. a billion people. Why? It was just these huge questions. I thought it didn't make any sense. And I guess I was the type of person that went, you know, I'm going to go there and uh, I'm going to try to see how I can develop projects on a sustained basis whereby right. I can actually stay there. And I guess I ended up creating the conditions whereby I became project manager for an exhibition on, um, you know, decolonization, the independence movement in Africa. Yeah. And then I was, you know, I did a show on 
China in the 1920s and 30s after the May 1919 revolution mm-hmm. and things like that. And then I was curator at Sharjah. I was just kind of interested in all these different places, not simply because I, I wanted just to go there, but I was because it's a lot of work to do these projects. Yes, of it course. Wouldn't like, you know, you had to write, I had to write 10,000 word essay, yeah. <laughs> things like that. <laughs> You mentioned 30 years ago, and I, I want to take you back to Vancouver. You're born and raised there. You're first-generation uh, Chinese immigrants, and um, you've been mentioned alongside artists like Jeff Wall, Roy Arden, Ian Wallace, Stan Douglas, Vicky Alexander, I could go on, who are collectively referred to as belonging to the so-called Vancouver School of Conceptual Art or Post-Conceptual Photography. Could you talk a little bit about what shaped that particular art scene in in Vancouver and its sort of main contributions to art in Canada and and beyond? What was going on there? Well, first of all, I I should say that there's been many generations of artists that have emerged from Vancouver, like Brian Youngen and Jeffrey Farmer and Stephen Shearer. So a lot of artists have come out of there and when people ask the question you've asked, it, there's a suggestion, which I think is totally understandable, that how did such a scene emerge from such a remote <laughs> uh, place, right? But I think um, what created the conditions for that was that Vancouver, despite the fact that it was like a kind of you know backwater for many decades and, mm-hmm. and a refuge for hippies, and was also a place where intellectuals from you know, draft dodgers in the Vietnam War settled. Plus, right. even the idea of it being a kind of terminus city was mm-hmm. there's something freeing and liberating about that. I mean, there's something isolating, but it was also something quite freeing about that. Mm-hmm. And I think we had people like Alvin Balkin, we had who's a professor at uh, UBC, and they were really interested in bringing in, you know, knowledge from capitals. I mean, I had a professor. Uh, Stanley Cooperman, who's kind of a great poet, actually, and writer. Mm-hmm. He was from uh, New York. And so he escapes to Vancouver. And Ernest Becker, who wrote a great book on um, on death, actually, a great philosophical book. He was there for many years. Kasia Silverman, a great art historian, uh, was there for many years. And even, even the Bay Area poets, beat poets like Allen um, Ginsberg and so on, they were coming up constantly, right? Yeah. So you had that kind of fermentation, you might say, taking place. But you also had like people like, well, Jeff, I guess, and also Ian Wallace, who's kind of underestimated in terms of the influence on shaping the uh, pedagogical program at the then-named Vancouver School of Art, now Emily Carr University. And they would bring in all kinds of, especially Ian, um, international artists, international critics, like Gossuth, Martha Rossler, you name it, they were mm-hmm. they were coming every week, mm-hmm. right? It mm-hmm. was also a different art world then too, because you know I remember I was assigned to contact Joseph Gossuth to see find out his interest in coming to speak to students. He answers, and I said, "But we can't pay very much. We can only pay maybe a couple hundred Canadian, and we'll, but we'll try to get up to that <laughs> four hundred or something." He says, "Great." Right? And I'm thinking, that would never happen today. Yeah, but it was yeah, all those conditions not. that created this kind of intellectual curiosity. Uh, we had these reading groups, you might say. Yeah, We had exchanges with the Kootenai School of Writing, for example. 
there was a subset of people really interested in avant-garde film. Right. And uh, there was also the Ace Gallery, which was, I remember seeing Andy Warhol opening there, and Andy Warhol actually attended. Wow. There was just a lot of little things that if, that, which was quite amazing because the art gallery at that time was tiny. Right. Right. And there's no other real museum. And, and, but you had certain things that just created the right conditions for a scene to emerge. Yeah. It's amazing. I want to turn to your book, Everything is Relevant, uh, which is a favorite of mine. And I want to spend some time on two pieces or two, two essays. So in an essay titled Canadian Cultural Policy, A Problem of Metaphysics, you sort of present a, a comprehensive review of, of Canada's arts and culture apparatus, where you look at its history, the strengths that come along with how it evolved, uh, the challenges for sure. And in that essay, you, you outline how Canadian arts and culture policy developed largely in response to this fear, perceived or otherwise, of uh, the Canadian arts being subsumed, it seems, by the, by the U.S. and its massive cultural production. And I, I wonder if your views, given that you wrote that piece, I think, 23, 24 years ago, 25, 25 years ago? 25 years ago. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering, when you look at it now, in terms of funding, in terms of you know policy, government, initiatives around art uh, has anything changed or are you looking sort of at the same system what's your thought on that policy today ambivalence i guess okay. <laughs> no i i think it was um supporting the arts i think is important right but i also thought the placing all responsibility for evaluating art curating art generating the next generation of art administrating art on artists, I thought was also flawed because I one of the things that I know that even then was that there you know there was a lot of artists in Canada, lots of artists run spaces and lots of venues for and opportunities for young artists to learn video, all kinds of things, and be introduced to art, and that's good. But there was very little in terms of supporting or generating a curatorial class, an art critical class, mm. there's very little in terms of really a, a dynamic Canadian art history programs mm -hmm. in universities. It was all quite dry, and, and it ended like 30 years even prior to what I wrote. In fact, I mentioned that, yep. that it was like, like the last book up until that point that was relevant, at least uh, that I thought was relevant, was um, Dennis Reed's book, right. Canadian Painting, right? So, in 1973, right. I think he goes up to or something. Yeah, maybe, right? Yeah. And so I thought there was something wrong with that. And I remember um, when I went to, I started exhibiting, and I gave a talk at the Dusseldorf Art Academy, and I met uh, all these young artists named Thomas Roof and Thomas Struess, and they were, <laughs> who became really well-known. Big names. Yeah. yeah. I remember uh, Thomas Roof said, let's trade some catalogs and so on. And so I said, sure. I brought whatever I had on me, and, and they were mostly, mostly like little brochures, little write-ups. <laughs> and then he would have like these beautifully bound books, right, six or seven. I said, wow, did you have – these are museum shows? He says, no, no, these are just, you know, German artist-run spaces, <laughs> right? And yeah. I, but I said, why? But you've got like these essays and so on. He says, yeah, they, the government tries to support intellectual writers and think philosophically about the importance of art and – Mm -hmm. Right. That I thought was really a, a, a big lapse in terms of um, the Canadian art scene. 
So I've already supported it, but I also thought there was something important missing about it and that it needed to address that as an issue. Yeah. Let's stay with the book for a second. The other section that I, I really love is your uh, The London Art Diaries, 1999, 2000. I guess in that time you were traveling. And so you present uh, these discursive, deeply insightful accounts of of your travels, you know, random thoughts, encounters with different people related to art. And you have this one entry where you sort of bemoan a situation where art schools, and I know you're a chair in an art department, so I'm really interested in your take on this. Art schools seem to be producing artists who are capable of, you know, bringing forward or creating technically strong and, and beautiful work. But it's it's art that lacks what you call emotional and intellectual finish. Given your ongoing involvement in an art uh, institution, art education, I'm curious about your current thoughts. Again, you wrote these pieces quite some time ago. So I'm wondering where you're at now with the question of art schools and the kinds of artists that they seem to produce. And and I guess you would speak from the U.S. context. You know, I was obviously painting things with a very broad stroke, right? But yeah. I do think that in at least in the world of art, there has been a renaissance in terms of the expansion of beautiful voices and new constituents of artists have started to participate in, in the art system, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for reasons of uh, globalized art world. And the Biennale form, which has proliferated since the last 20, 25 years, has really been an outstanding uh, vehicle for the, you know, expression of these voices. Um, so that that followed uh, my London art period, right? Having said that, I, I do think, uh, by and large, most art schools, most, right? Not all, because if you start counting how many art schools there are, there are lots. We only we always think about certain art schools, right? right? But there's mi- hundreds and hundreds of them. And most of them are not very good. Why do you most say that? Them, because I think most of them, at least from my experience, most of them don't allow the student, right, the young artist, to really discover themselves. A lot of it is like, you know, I'm, I'm more important. I'm a professor. You're going to follow my vision of art, right? I could give you an example whereby, you know, we get a lot of applicants at Penn, and um, we would get, like, uh, an applicant where, you know, the, the work, at first glance at the images of the work, you'd say, this doesn't look very good because the image is very poor quality. It's not lit properly. It's not, you know, which yeah. is, of course, is not... Not a good thing, right? But at the same time, I always thought, wait a second, this person is going to this college, which is obscure in some village, basically, in the <laughs> middle of some, nowhere. And maybe there's no, no prop, not proper equipment. Maybe they're not taught how important it is to present. But, you know, the statement is actually quite interesting. And even the work, if you kind of squint and look at it, Right. More often than not, those students turn out to be, they have a real discovery. So if they have the right pedagogy, they really bloom. I mean, I also think that, you know, a lot of people want to be artists, right? Thousands and thousands of young people want to be artists and so on. And um, most of them, I would say, probably shouldn't be artists because they don't really have anything to say or they have a kind of romantic idea of art. 
I know that's kind of sacrilegious, but I, I do think art is um is a special domain of practice and uh and it's not easy. You know, yeah. it's fun. I yeah. do art because I think it's a more fun world than most worlds, but it is it does require a lot of dedication, hard work, and, and also learning how to pick yourself up and playing the long game. Did you read Claire Bishop's piece in Art Forum on research driven art this mm-hmm. this turn? Claire kind of blames the proliferation of PhD programs and and the internet was my reading <laughs> as combined forces for this proliferation where you go to a show and you're bombarded with dis- these various displays of data and research and texts and do you agree that it's the universities and and the internet that are responsible for this excess of information art or is something else going on well i don't agree because i i think again uh you know that's like a that's a cartoon right mm. and you know cartoons are always based on something that's partly true right? yeah so you could always say that yeah there's a lot of art that's incredibly overdetermined overthought sure mm-hmm. but i also think there's a lot of really incredible art that that is deeply intellectual and, and difficult and maybe I, I suspect gets classified in with the same brush. Right. You know, I can't say I agree or disagree. I right. I think there's a, there's so much diversity that comes across as art, and uh, a lot of it I think is really good. And I also think, you know, art fundamentally is also an intellectual practice. Of course, it's a material practice, it's an aesthetic practice, but it's also an intellectual practice, which and it has a proud uh, language of its own that is required of it to continue. Mm -hmm. I want to turn to your recent show, which I spoke to you about previously, and and that was at the AGO titled Death and Furniture. And I I think what was unique about that show, and I recall researching this, that you you were bringing together a range of updated works from your various series, uh, Photo Mirror, Necrology, uh, Furniture Sculpture, your portrait repeated text series, these series you've been working in for, for decades, but you you brought certain works together for the first time in one setting, I believe, in that mm-hmm. show. And I, and I wondered what that was like for you from a kind of retrospective lens to, to think back on these ongoing series, but here you were bringing them into conversation at the AGO. That was grateful to have the opportunity to be able to coalesce different strands of my thinking my work mm-hmm. in one's uh, venue because it made me think back to when I first started as an artist the first n- number of years, actually, where I would develop a series and I'd develop another series, I'd develop furniture work and develop and so on, mm-hmm. language paintings. And I would get a lot of criticism at that time from a lot of people, actually, who were in positions of influence saying, you know, you seem smart, but you're all over the place. Why are you... Why are you kind of zigzagging? And so I, I don't feel I'm zigzagging. I said, but you're jumping from, I don't feel I'm jumping because I felt that I was developing a set of concerns and a language that was connecting all the different forms of the work. Right. And I thought it was not possible for me to express the many dimensions of my interest in one form, one particular form. But that was the orthodoxy at that time. So when... I was showing at the AGO, mm-hmm. I, I really thought back to this earlier criticism, which was 
quite painful to endure at the time, right. right? Yeah. By the way, congratulations on the 2023 Scotiabank Photography Award. That's amazing. Yeah, thank you. I know winning the award means you'll have a solo exhibition at the next contact. Yeah, at the Image at, Center. At the Image Center next year. Can you give us a, a little hint as to what you might be presenting or, or working on? I'm not sure this work I'm working on, but okay. during the uh, mid-1990s, when I started doing this series of uh, you know repeated text image works, uh, I shot a lot of pictures. I had this large format camera and I would just, I did quite a lot. I was like, I basically never slept. Right. And um, my wife recently was going over my negatives and so on. And mm-hmm. many of them were print, printed as contact sheets. And she said to me, when did you take this picture? I said, you know, 94, I guess. And yeah. she said, wow, what's, what's the text for it? It's an incredible work. Right. And I said, Oh, I never, I never, Realized, and I said, and then <laughs> I looked at it again. I went, yeah. And so next morning, I looked at it some more, and I realized I had probably like maybe 13, 14 images out of about twenty that I feel can be converted into work and it has a real relevance. I'm not sure why I didn't finish them. I, I think probably because I didn't have enough money to finish them. Right. Right. You know, I never made enough money, so. But um, I'm glad they're here, and, and uh, it actually made me inhabit my own 1990 or mid-90s body somehow. It was just really quite magical. Went, wow. I felt like I was really, not that my life is over, but I felt like I was really <laughs> at the apex in terms, of, in terms of my thinking and my drive and so on. And yet I thought they were still relevant. So right. uh, that's going to be one series anyway. You've lived and worked in the U.S. for some time now. I think 2016, you became the chair of fine arts at the University of Pennsylvania's Weitzman School of Design in Philadelphia. And uh, when I was thinking of 2016, I'm thinking, well, what else happened in the world at that time? And of course, that's when uh, Trump was elected. And I I wonder what it's been like uh, living in the U.S. through these times and whether it's caused you to think about the role of art, as particularly your, your work in the public domain and, and public-based art, whether you see it as uh, more urgent, less urgent, uh, more relevant than ever. What's the current context in the U.S. done to your thinking around the role of art? To be clear, I moved to U.S. in 2012. Oh, right? it was earlier. Okay. Yeah. Now, I became chair in 2016. I see. But I moved to the U.S. in 2012, and I'm not sure I wouldn't have <laughs> turned right back if, you know, knowing that Trump was going to be elected. To put it mildly, it was a nightmare to live through Trump. I mean, I know that it was a nightmare for many parts of the world, but to be in, right in the United the States, yeah. right, only, you know, maybe about 100 miles north of Washington, D.C., right? And also, you know, Trump graduated from from Penn. Okay. In fact, his his daughter Tiffany was a fine arts student, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> and I I even met Trump. Um, wow. At Penn, right? Yeah, it was it was a nightmare. Um, but at the same time, I think you know I'm an, I'm the type of artist that's I like to see my artists being relevant to to the times, right? I'm not 
just an artist who makes art. I'm an artist who writes. I'm an artist who thinks. I'm an artist who co-founded Monument Lab, an important think tank. Now, I don't consider all the, the things that I do that aren't, aren't art works. I don't consider those artworks, by the way. Right. Yeah. But I do consider it as part of the life of an artist. And so, you know, for better or for worse, the United States is a kind of an amazing place. I, I think people who don't even like the United States have to agree that there's a lot to that is wonderful about the United States. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that's terrible about the United <laughs> States, right? And uh, unfortunately, that's what you have to have. You have to acknowledge that the terrible comes with the wonderful in the United States. And it, and it, come, and it can switch like that from some, a situation that's incredibly wonderful, exhilarating, to a moment that's incredibly tragic and horrifying just in a split second, right? Yeah. It's a very weird place. So it's very, as an artist, it's very intellectually stimulating for me. I feel like I can do more things there. You know, I was able to co-start this think tank, which I don't think it would have been so easy for me to begin in in Canada and so on. And besides, I had to come to the United States because, you know, after I left UBC in 2006, and I hope this is the the, uh, listeners aren't misreading this as like vengeful or or it's full of a grudge regarding Canada. But the fact was, was that I never received any interest from Canadian schools after I left UBC. In the first year I left UBC, I, I received four or five inquiries from major American schools, right? And I kept, and they kept coming in, like from Yale, from MIT, from, you know, they weren't small schools. And so I had a lot of interests from, and then eventually I, I became a, a father and, um, my wife said to me, are you going to keep saying no? Because now to these offers, because now you're a parent and you may need, <laughs> you may right? need the money. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's yeah. like that because I don't come from and I have nothing, I, no inheritance, for example. But it was also a great thing. It was hard uh, coming to Philadelphia and it was like coming to a totally different world, right? Because it's like, it's cutthroat. It's, you know, capitalism is like a religion in the United States. And, uh, you know, the poor are punished because they are failing to be rich. I mean, it's crazy, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, racism is, or let's just say race continues to be, uh, you know, endemic to a system. But at the same time, there's also all kinds of incredibly valiant and important anti-racist organizations, anti, uh, you know, poverty organizations that I'm, I'm a part of. And yeah. uh, I've never seen anything quite like that as well when I was in Canada, right. to, at least to, to that scope. You know, I mean, lots of, now, now that Trump is possibly going coming to be back. coming back, right? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, one thing, I'm ne- never going to give up my Canadian passport. Right. You know, um, <laughs> I appreciate Canada all yeah. the more uh, since coming to the United States, right? But yeah. the fact is, it was like, I needed a job. It's, you know, I need security. I don't come from security. And, um, I never had any offers from the United, from Canada. So fair enough. You mentioned Monument Lab, which is a, a public art and history studio that you co-founded in Philadelphia. Can you tell us more about that organization, its mandate, and and what's happening today? I I know when we last spoke, the movement around removing monuments that were connected to colonial and racist uh, 
past uh, was very prominent and was very topical. Maybe less so now, but I'm, I'm wondering what's the organization's current focus? Well, we've done a number of shows, one that just opened actually on, on the mall, National Mall in D.C., mm-hmm. and they give voice to um, a, a system of um, society that's rife with, let's just say, racialism, if not outward racism. Mm-hmm. And so we do advocate for all kinds of um, social justice constituents. Um, we do give advice to various municipalities and cities about what to do with uh, renaming of situations, you know, difficult path. We're not a PR firm, by the way. We're right. not, we don't try to go, okay, this is how you can mitigate this harm <laughs> you've done. We're not interested in that, right? We're really interested in broadening the dimensions of democracy and uh, within the procedures and, and so on. And so, we, you know, we're busy. We do a lot of work like that. I'm curious, while we're on monuments, what's your take on some of these controversies around removing Confederate statues, for example, versus giving them places in museums? Or do you have a, a kind of view on what we should be doing or thinking around those monuments that cause so much pain and are connected to so much painful history? Well, I mean, every situation is specific, but I, I would say that I don't think a Confederate monument, that was, most of which were erected at, well after the Civil War, often in places where the Civil War didn't even take place or even come close to taking place, right? Except to try to create a full history, right? Mm-hmm. This idea of the lost history, lost cause. I don't think those things are museum worthy. They're not particularly aesthetically interesting. Even if they were removed, right, it's not like they're present in terms of documentation, books, encyclopedias, whatever, are being wiped out. They're still there. They still register. So I would say that um, the removal of monuments is just but a step. It's not um, the end all. I do think that monuments shouldn't be, even problematic ones, shouldn't be removed without a healthy dose of discussion by many, 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 many people, mm-hmm. right, who live in neighborhoods, not just intellectuals and artists, but although uh, those are important and essential, but uh, a wide number of people having input, right? I, d- I think the way a Confederate monument was removed in, in the stealth of night in New Orleans, for example, where it just kind of disappeared at 3 a.m., and then people woke up, hey, what happened? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. I don't think that was maybe the best route, right? Although I understand it too, because if uh, Bozers came at noon, I'm sure maybe there would have been a riot, right? So right. these things are very difficult. Beyond the Image Center show that you've got coming up, what else are you working on? What, what's got Ken Lum's time right now? <laughs> Well, I'm a father, so that takes up a lot of time, <laughs> and a husband. Yes. Which I, but I'm I, I'm working on a you know a number of shows. Recently, I did a whole series of lectures in Shanghai, as I mentioned. Working on a group show in Pasad for Pasadena at the end of the year. I'm in a group show at the ICA in in Philadelphia. I'm working on a project at the Asian Arts Archive in New York City. Right. I'm artist and resident there, and, and uh, I'm really interested in this period of uh, social liberalization, 
post-1979 um, in China mm-hmm. and the uh, hunger for all kinds of Western books that was that were banned up until that point. And then they were quickly translated by people who were not uh, proper translators. Right. Right. So many of them were like, you know, Totem and Taboo by Freud were written in the most hilarious ways, translated in the most hilarious ways. So I'm re- really interested in making a study of the mistranslations, right? As oh, if wow. Not not <laughs> in terms of their uh, their verity in relationship to the uh, to Freud or to Foucault or whatever, but I'm just interested in the, you know, what I can glean from the mistranslation. So that's one project. I, I wrote a screenplay. I think maybe I discussed this with you last time. I wrote two screenplays, actually, one which is under discussion with the Hollywood Production House. Wow, what's that about? Yeah, we'll see how that goes, but it looks promising so far. It's set in 1868, and it's about a wagon train that carries mining equipment and two wagons of uh, indentured laborers from China who are being hired to work the fields of the Idaho Gold Rush in Idaho City, Idaho in 1868. So it's a nine-day travelogue and of this wagon train and there's all kinds of little things that happen along the way sounds amazing I'd like to ask you a question that a a past guest has put forward and that question is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received and who provided it (laughs) I like to clobber that guy that's a hard question the best piece of advice I don't know if it's the best piece of advice, but I, it's one that I've taken to heart. And in many ways, I think it's a very difficult piece of advice because it's just very emotionally difficult to try to fulfill that advice. Mm-hmm. But I think my mother always said to me, I'm paraphrasing, but no matter how difficult things have been for you and so on, because and we grew up not in easy circumstances, just remember always be generous to another, right? So wow. it's marked me. So it's, yeah. is that the best advice? You know, if she, didn't, if she didn't give me that advice and that advice did not become ingrained in me, mm. I think maybe life would have been a bit easier. You know? <laughs> yeah, but, right. but it is what it is, right? So, and I think it's always made me always remember what what's important for me uh, while I'm on this planet. So I guess it, I guess it is the best advice I've ever received. And in turn, is there a question you'd like to throw out that we can put to uh, future guests on the show? I guess uh, the question I would have would be, and it's a slightly cliched one, but I think it's an important one, and it's not something that I came up with. A lot of people ask, right? Mm-hmm. How would you best like to be remembered? I mm, guess. Yeah. Ken, thank you so much for this uh, interview. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and wish you well with all your future projects. Yeah. Thank you very much, Neil. Intention, presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, is made possible with the support of Canada Council for the Arts. We thank the diverse mix of Canadian contemporary artists for sharing more about their lives and work. This episode was hosted and created by Neil Price in collaboration with the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery team, Beverly Cheng, Daria Sposobna, and Zachary Skola Allison. This show was produced by the team at Edit Audio. This episode was edited, mixed, and mastered by Ali Sirwa. Our executive producer is Steph Colburn, 
and our production manager is Kathleen Speckert. Show music is by No Cliché and Mopawa Mumu. 